So today's reading is from Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Hear God's word. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, no matter whether you uh, look at a business venture, a relationship, or even a nation, when the writing's on the wall, and you have Samuel Smith singing it, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not good news. It was about um, a year ago now, I remember this day distinctly, you know, it's one of those few days that come into your lives where you feel like you're firing on all cylinders, and like everything on your to-do list actually gets done. And so I decided at that moment, I'm going to go home a little early, and I'm going to surprise my kids. I'm going to be there when they wake up from their nap, you know? And so I go home. Everything's going according to plan. I come in the house, go up the stairs, and I'm standing right outside the room of my daughter, Ava, and I hear this little tiny voice. And I can tell just her little high-pitched, squeaky voice that she's telling herself a story. And I just, it's precious, right? Exactly. And so I'm just standing there, and I kind of have this proud papa moment where I'm thinking, okay, she's just two years old, and instead of screaming to be let out of her room and wake up her brother Israel, she's just making the best out of the time that she has. Like, that a girl, right? So then I, I slowly start to turn the handle, and I look inside the room, and I just see her face. Her face lights up, and it's beaming from ear to ear, and she's so excited to see me. But a smile wasn't the only thing I saw on her face. 
There was something on her face, on the walls, on the bed. Black marker was everywhere. I mean, like of all the colors too, like black marker, like seriously? <clears throat> and, and listen, if I had the emotional energy, I would have taken a picture in the moment. Um, but it was something like this little girl uh, when Ava looked, and, and doesn't that smile just melt away any anger, right? Well, kind of. Um, and listen, uh, no matter how great your life is going or your day is going up to that point, when there's writing on the wall, your whole world comes to a screeching, a screeching halt. Now, if you're new with us, we're going through a series where we're, we're exploring what it looks like to live our lives without control. And here's the reason why. Like every social commentator, economist, opinion poll is communicating some alarming transitions that we're seeing in our culture. And when we undergo change, there's one thing that every one of us wants deep down more than anything else, and that's control. Because in control, there's a sense of safety. We chase after it, we organize our lives around it, and we fight for it, control. But what happens when the writing's on the wall? When that thing you thought was untouchable comes crumbling down right in front of you? Now, I think that um, no one knows what it means to live without control better than the prophet Daniel who lived some 2,500 years ago. Looking back over his life lived time and again, he was not in control. And, and yet he invites us in to see how God worked in and around him and continues to work in and around us today. And last week we saw in Daniel chapter 4, this, this amazing story, right, of God graciously pursuing the bloodthirsty oppressor Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, who would have thought starting in chapter 1 that God was wooing this rapacious, and violent oppressor named Nebuchadnezzar, and yet God brings this life-altering experience where Nebuchadnezzar basically loses his mind until finally Nebuchadnezzar is willing to bow his knee to the creator of the cosmos. And we find this amazing bow tie of an ending of a story where Nebuchadnezzar does end in humility and proclaims that the God who has created the world is truly king, even over Babylon. But not every story ends so nice, does it? And that's where we cue Daniel chapter 5. You see, when you come to Daniel, you need to understand that Daniel chapter 4 and chapter 5, they need to be read in concert. Because in Daniel chapter 4, we see pride at the forefront, and yet we also see God's grace and how he's wooing Nebuchadnezzar. It's a picture of hope, I think, for all of us. But then when we come to Daniel chapter 5, this is very sobering. This is a wake-up call, and, and, and this morning, I want you to hear me. I have some awful news. I have some awful news. This isn't a morning for you to start assessing what you can do in your five-year plan and, and start dreaming about the potential. This isn't an opportunity for you to make professional goals. Instead, this is when, when at the party, the music stops. This is that moment where you hear the sirens on the street and you know catastrophe is right around the corner. Everything you held dear is in the air. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. I've got some awful news to share. And to hear that, we're going to look together at Daniel chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn with me? to Daniel chapter 5. Now, while you're turning there, here's a little bit of context. In between Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5, we fast-forwarded a few decades. And good old Nebuchadnezzar, he's dead. He's gone. He's out of the picture. And Belshazzar is ruling. But to be clear, 
Belshazzar isn't the head king, which has led to a lot of confusion, okay? For a long time, people have pointed to this passage here in Daniel chapter 5 as to why the Bible is historically unreliable. But I'm a firm believer that history is actually on the side of God's people. And come to find out in the 19th century, there was a tablet that was discovered that brings a lot of clarity to what is being communicated here. So here's what we know. Belshazzar is the son of this guy, Nabonidus, okay? And we know historically that he's the last king of the Babylonian empire. So why is Belshazzar called a ruler? Well, Nabonidus, he was away from his Babylonian kingdom for 10 out of 17 of his years of his reign. He's putting out all these fires across the Babylonian empire. And so what Nabonidus does is he puts our boy, you know, Belshazzar, in charge while he's away. And this is why Belshazzar, as you heard in our scripture reading this morning, mentions, whoever can interpret what I saw, I'll let them be the third ruler of the kingdom. Okay? Well, then why is, why is Nebuchadnezzar called his father? Good question. For the same reason that George Washington is called a forefather of the United States. For the same reason that Abraham to the nation of Israel is called Father Abraham. Because he's the originator of the great empire of Babylon. And so he set the trajectory of every king that is to follow to now follow in his footsteps and his type of ruling. So now that we've got that cleared up, let's look at the story, okay? What we find is uh, Belshazzar, he's throwing this all-out party, which, by the way, if you're king, that's got to be one of the perks, right? You've just got like a party planning committee in the wings, ready to throw a celebration of any theme that comes, you know, to your mind at any moment. But what's really interesting about this party in particular is that Belshazzar, he throws it while he's under siege. And actually, he's been under siege probably for around two years by the Persian army. But why should Belshazzar be worried? We need to understand the geography of Babylon here. The river Euphrates, it flowed right through the city and it provided ample water supply for people, for cattle, for crops. So if Belshazzar needs to wait and be cooped up, he can do this for years and actually still live a really lavish and comfortable lifestyle. So throwing this party, Belshazzar is basically, you know, um, giving the one finger salute to the Persian army. And he's basically saying, hey, you call this a siege? I could do this all day, right? Like I could be up here all day and I'll be totally fine. And so you guys do what you need to do. Be away from your families. And we're going to just, we're going to have a good old time up here in Babylon. It's totally mocking the Persian army. Well, Belshazzar at this party, he gets smashed out of his mind, okay? And this is the only thing that makes sense of the text when it says he tasted the wine and then he calls for the golden vessels that the, from the Israelite temple that his great-grandpa Nebuchadnezzar, right, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. And what he does is he fills them with wine and now as kind of like a way of spitting in the eye of the God of Israel, which is one of the many gods they feel like they've conquered when they've conquered the peoples of the surrounding nations. He toasts them to the false gods of Babylon. Which is kind of crazy talk, even for the Babylonians. I mean, the Babylonians, in the words of Michael Scott, weren't little stitious. They were superstitious, okay? They would not do this if they were in their right minds. And so if he's just blown out of his mind, and here's the deal. If he feels untouchable, if he already feels untouchable, like you can put a siege on and I'm going to be fine for years upon years, then you add a little liquid courage. Who knows what you won't do, Right? Then it happens. The thing that happened over 2,500 years ago that still is like part of our common phraseology 
today in the 21st century. A finger shows up and etches this writing on the wall, and Belshazzar, he freaks out. Actually, it says in the original that when he sees this godly graffiti, his loins are loosened, which I'll let your imagination fill in the blanks on that one. Then then he calls the magicians and the enchanters to figure out what just happened and what it means, but no one can interpret it. And, and, And so everybody's freaking out so much. Belshazzar's freaking out that the queen mother... Belshazzar's mom, who's really not even supposed to come before Belshazzar, one of the rulers without being requested to come before the ruler, or she could lose her head, she breaks protocol and she comes in and basically gives her son the business. Like, (laughs) it's so fast. She goes, what's wrong with you? You know, Nebuchadnezzar, the forefather of this great nation, he he would have never acted like this. Besides, if you knew anything, you'd know that there's someone here who's interpreted dreams for for, for so long with the kings. And he's been faithful, so why don't you call up Daniel? Now, this is where Daniel comes on the scene, right? He's 80 or so years old. (laughs) And he's just, he's had this distinguished career caring for Babylon. I mean, he's a man worthy of respect. He served kings faithfully. But how does Belshazzar treat him? If you really dive into how Belshazzar actually responds to Daniel, it it is littered with disrespect. Hey, you're, you're one of those Judean exiles, right? You're one of my prisoners. I've heard you've done some really neat things before. You think you can do that again? If you can, you can sit up here with me. Almost this doubting, mocking tone that starts to bleed through the way he's approaching Daniel, this man who's been the right hand and even key leader of Babylon for decades. I would have loved to see Daniel's response. And maybe it's my twisted imagination, but for some reason he makes me think of Clint Eastwood from... <laughs> From Grand Torino, do you remember that? Daniel's uh, first response is that he tells Belshazzar where he can shove his gifts. (laughs) And then he's like, no, no, no. No, I'll interpret that writing for free. Thank you very much. You you don't have to pay me a dime. And he has like this smirk on his face. But he goes, but before I do that, I want to give you a history lesson, okay? The founding father of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he was given all this. And I mean, he was powerful, way more powerful than you, Belshazzar more respected, and then he grew in great pride. And the most high God, the one that you just mocked by toasting all your false gods with his vessels, with his utensils, he made your your grandpa go nuts until he finally bowed the knee and honored him as the true king over the universe. And you knew all of this. This isn't a foreign story for you. And you still acted like a fool, right? You, you act like you're untouchable, like you, you can do whatever you want and there's no consequences. I mean, haven't you learned anything from the past? And so God sent you this message inscribed as we see in verse 25, Mena, Mena, Tekel, and Perez, right? And Daniel tells Belshazzar what it means by interpreting these four nouns as verbs. Look with me here, beginning in verse 26, Okay. This is the interpretation of the matter, all right? So you've got the, the words up here. You've got mene. I figured I would write it on something since it was written on something. Tekel and then Perez, right? And what he says here, verse 26, verse 26. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered your days. God has numbered 
the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales of justice and found wanting in Perez. Your kingdom will be divided, all right? So you find <laughs> this really daunting, well, the daunting story uh, of what's happening here. And in verse 29, even though Daniel doesn't want it, Belshazzar makes him the third ruler of Babylon. Which one's the again? I go back to Clint Eastwood. He's just got this picture of sitting down with this look of disgust. Like, I don't want to be a ruler of this terrible kingdom that's about to fall. <laughs> Isn't that good? Oh, man. Then we read that, you know, that very night, that very night, Belshazzar dies. He doesn't get a couple weeks to think about it. There is no plan B if Belshazzar repents, you know, and the kingdom can be salvaged. He should have known better. He knew the stories and the words of Johnny Cash that sooner or later, God will cut you down. And so death came quickly. And interestingly enough, historians Herodotus and Xenophon, they both record that Babylon was taken on the night of a great feast. So this is not some really neat fairy tale. You need to understand how God is interacting within the history of the material world. But why? Why was the judgment so swift with Belshazzar versus with Nebuchadnezzar? Was it that he just picked the wrong God's fine china to play around with that afternoon? I mean, what's, what's going on? Not quite. You see, behind all the idiocy of mocking the God of Israel and throwing this ridiculous party while he's under a siege, behind all of that is the intoxication of pride. And here, here's what we need to understand specifically in this story about pride. Pride is the audacious belief that unlike everyone before you, you're untouchable. Like you've heard some stories, but pride is the audacious belief that unlike everybody before you, you, you're different. No, this, this situation's different and you're untouchable. It's the audacious belief that unlike everyone before you, you're untouchable. And here's the thing, it's easy to look back on this guy, Belshazzar, which just doesn't his name sound like you've had one too many beers, Belshazzar. You know, like, <laughs> it's easy to look back on this guy and say, what an idiot. Because hindsight's 2020, but we so often miss it in our own lives. Every single one of us, we need to understand this, is, is so susceptible to the intoxicating thought that we're different, that somehow our situation, our framing, our, our, our gifts and talents have made us different, that somehow we're untouchable. I was listening to NPR um, this last week, and they mentioned how more than any other presidential uh, race in history in the debates, people are just making stuff up. <laughs> I mean, they're just slinging these accusations at each other that have no bearing at all in reality, and the fact checkers are just throwing their papers in the air like, is this really what we've, we've been left to? I mean, truth is thrown out the window, and it's all coming down to manipulation, persuasion, and control. And so we find ourselves with politicians who act like they're untouchable untouchable. People from every political persuasion are asked themselves, how did we get here? Well, I can tell you that it didn't come out of nowhere. And the reality is, is we're looking at ourselves in the mirror and we're hating what we see. These are the people that we've produced in our culture because this is who we are, whether we like it or not. I mean, somehow they made it through the primaries. <laughs> And as we think about that, this, this last, as, as I was thinking about it this last week, I, I wanted us to really do some soul searching. Um, and I want to share what I think are the top five signs that you believe you're untouchable. 
the top five signs that you believe you're untouchable, that, that this audacious belief that even in the face of the worst news, unlike everyone who came before you, you're untouchable. You think you're different. I think the first sign, okay, so the first sign of this untouchable spirit, it shows up specifically in our lives as young adults, so I'm still in that camp, so this is me. Maybe you grew up in church, maybe you've heard the gospel, you had a friend who shared the gospel with you, and, and we hear the call to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and instead we say, well, I've got my whole life ahead of me to figure it out. No rush. I've got my whole life ahead of me to figure it out. No rush. I'm going to explore this instead of really trust Jesus here. I'm going, to, I'm going to try that instead of heed his warnings about this here. Why? Because I've got my whole life ahead of me. Right now, I want to focus on my career, or right now, I just, I just want to have some fun, or why can't I just make some mistakes? I'll be fine. You don't understand. I'm different. I'll be careful. I'm fine. Listen, the writing's on the wall. The writing's on the wall. The second sign, I think, of this untouchable spirit, it shows us specifically in the third period of our lives, what we often call retirement. If you've got a healthy 401k, now's your time to relax, right? We hear, we hear the call to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and we say, well, I've paid my dues. I've got my nest egg. I'm okay. And the call to discipleship, that's, that's, that's a young person's game. This is what I've worked for, slaved for, and now I'm fine. Listen, the writing's on the wall. The writing's on the wall. I think the third top sign of this untouchable spirit, it's revealed when we find our security in our mental capacity. Maybe you're the kind of person who is always on the top of your class, right? You, you, you've got mad problem-solving skills. You know it. You're smart. No one would challenge that. And when, when you hear repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, you assuage your fear, telling yourself, well, I'll figure it out when it comes. I'll figure it out when it comes. You're the king or queen of justification. Like, you can, you can talk your way out of anything. You can figure out and talk your way out of almost any situation. You're too smart to fall to those old superstitions, right? Well, listen, the writing's on the wall. The writing's on the wall. The fourth top sign, I think, is that maybe you feel like you're untouchable because you've got connections. Like, you've got connections, right? If you lose your job, if you need a place to stay, if you need any sort of support, I've got my connections. I'm okay. Your mom will be there, like the queen mom here in our story. Your kids will be there. Your friends will be there. Well, listen, that's not always going to be true. The writing's on the wall. The writing's on the wall. But after that, I think one of the most dangerous signs, the fifth out of all of these, is this untouchable spirit of apathy. You've just stopped caring. Whether it all falls or not, who cares? And maybe you've been wounded too many times or you've tasted failure too many times and you're just cynical. You stopped caring because you've tasted pain too many times. Or whether it's the pride of youth or the security of age, your smarts, connections, or you're just plain apathetic, I've got awful news. On each of those walls of security that can make you feel like you're untouchable, God has written judgment. And listen, no one likes to talk about judgment, and yet when it's something we all dislike, we judge other, you know, we judge other people for doing it. We all do it. 
It's kind of like the person who, who's yelling, I hate it when you're yelling, you know? It's like, whoa, you, okay. And yet judgment, it's something deep down that I think we all know is true. It's something we demand when we see bigotry. It's something when we, we demand when we see genocide. It's something we demand when we see politicians communicating deceit. We demand judgment. And while we conveniently are angry when it doesn't come against others, we are simultaneously, simultaneously, if not more so, angry when it suddenly lands on us. In the words of Mirzlof Volf, who I think is one of the most celebrated theologians, one of the most thoughtful theologians of our day, he writes, I originally re- resisted the notion of a wrathful God because I dreaded being that wrath's target. I still do. I knew I couldn't just direct God's wrath against others as if it were a weapon I could aim at targets I particularly detested. It's God's wrath, not mine. If I want God's wrath to fall on evildoers, I must let it fall on myself. But what happens when you find yourself there? I mean, what what should we do when we hear the awful news? How should we respond to the writing on the wall? And here it is. I don't want you to miss this. When you hear the writings on the wall, embrace the awful news as true for you. We're so broken, so blind, so steeped in sin, we don't even know how broken we are. And just like Belshazzar, we've mocked God. Every commandment that our creator God has given for our flourishing, we've ignored either in thought, word, or deed. And this disobedience, every time we disobey, every time we ignore God's good word, it's really a declaration that we somehow believe we're untouchable or that I'm different. Yeah, yeah, that may be true for other people, but the writing's on the wall. Don't push it off. Don't try to cover it up. Don't try to take control. Don't try to deny it. Own the fact that these words right here, that your days are numbered, that the scales of justice have been weighed and you've been found wanting and what is left for you is ruin. They could just as easily be pointed at each and every one of us today. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Theologians have described this condition that we find ourselves in as totally Depraved. You know what that means? Like even our good things we try to do are driven by motivations of manipulation. Maybe people will like us. Maybe I'll finally be good enough rather than genuine self-giving. And so we have no rightful place in God's kingdom that we've earned. The only rightful place we deserve is hell. And listen, this isn't Christianity 101 stuff, okay? Um, I think we've all got room to grow in embracing the reality of this awful news? Here's why. I think if we really believed this, if we really understood this to be true at the depths of who we are, that each of us deserve God's wrath, that's what we deserve, that's what we've earned, we'd be looking for every inroad to share the gospel with the people we know. If we really believed this awful news, we'd look for every opportunity, all of our creative energy, that often goes to try to make us look better, that often goes to scheming to get ourselves that promotion or to to get us further ahead in terms of our social acceptance would go actually to to, to thoughts and, and, and imaginative pathways to share the gospel. We know the writings on the wall and just like Daniel remaining silent about the inevitable judgment of all people, it's not a viable option. 
And so we not only embrace this awful news, secondly, we share the awful news with tears in our eyes. I remember a time when I was in college and we went around the Ohio State University. Um, Sorry, I'm a Buckeye, can't help it. And we were sharing the gospel. There was this one girl, she was studying out on the lawn and she was probably a freshman. I don't think, I, I can't remember it right now, but I asked her this question. If she were to die tonight, many of you have heard this question, but if you were to die tonight and she stood before God and asked why he should let her into heaven, what do you think, what, is, what does she think she would say? Then I shared with her the awful news. And I saw the look of terror in her face in a way that I'd really never seen before. I mean, she was genuinely wrestling with the possibility of an eternity apart from God and hell. And I felt my heart go out to her. I mean, tears began to well up in my eyes when I told her, but that doesn't have to be the end. It doesn't have to be the end. As we read in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And then she said something I wasn't ready for because most often this doesn't happen. She goes, I want that. I want that. And so we prayed together. I was able to connect her with crew that was on campus in a particular chapter. And I remember after we prayed, you know, we're both super messy with tears and snot. You know, I asked her, was there anyone that you know praying for you at this moment? Or was there anything that was like getting your mind going about just what what we were going to talk about this morning and about the gospel? And you know what she said? Get ready for this, okay? She said, yeah, you know those billboards along the side of the road that say hell is real? (laughs) No lie. Okay, no, no lie. She goes, it was that. I was like, really? Come on. She's like, no, seriously, it was that. I, I, I saw that, and I go, well, what if? Like, what, what is there? If there's something after this life, if there is a heaven and hell, where am I going to be? And I hadn't really given it that much thought, but I was just driving for 30 minutes, so then that sign popped up, and I was like, well, i got to start thinking about this. And then we had this conversation. Listen, I'm probably not going to go put one of those billboards up, just so you know. But here's what we need to know. Only when we see how truly awful the bad news is, and embrace it as true for us, can we come to grips with how beautiful the good news is? That the same God who is just and must judge sin, we all long for a God who's that just, but when we come to grips with it, we we understand that we're found on the scales of justice wanting, if we're honest with ourselves. But he's also the same God who made a way of justification for those who rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You see, only when we come to grips with our condemnation that we rightfully deserve can we ever really celebrate redemption in Christ that we don't deserve. Only then can we explore this unending gratitude that led the Apostle Paul to give his life for Jesus, that that all the apostles gave their lives for Jesus, that over millennia people have died because they're so overwhelmed with gratitude that they're not headed to an eternal demise, but actually a blessed eternity with Christ. And so giving their life now in this temporal reality is worth it for eternal life. And so we can come to Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, and read what the Apostle Paul writes, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the circumcision of your uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all 
giving us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this old writing on the wall. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And this writing that's on the wall, where we see that our days are numbered, that we've been weighed against the scales of justice and found wanting, and that what is ahead of us is ruin, now we find instead of a day, days that are numbered, we find everlasting life. In the face of justice, we find forgiveness because of Christ's sufficient work and his substitutionary atonement on our behalf. And instead of ruin, we are promised flourishing. This is the new writing we can rest in. But only when we come to grips with how awful the news is that awaits us unless we embrace the beauty of the good news. Because then we can look at a new writing and a song that we so often sing before the throne of God above, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. Let's pray. God, we so often fabricate these false walls of security that we think we can lead our lives untouchable. But we will chafe against the grounds of justice. We will be found wanting in the end unless we rest in the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus where he took our place, died our death, paid our penalty, and so offers forgiveness. God, may we embrace this awful news as true for us so that we can celebrate the beauty of the good news that's also true for those who embrace Christ. And so may we share the awful news with tears in our eyes so we can celebrate the good news with shouts of praise. God, help us. God, guide us to be like Daniel. And so proclaim your son and rest in a new writing written for us. In Jesus' name, amen.